Hi everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name is John Lyson. Joining me as always we have Brendan Connolly and Craig Skinner. We are joined tonight by a very special guest. We have Justin Steele who is the director of the forthcoming film Death and Cremation. Um, and we'll be talking about that film uh, and the stars and what stage it's at um, a little bit later on. But we're going to kick straight into a few film reviews. Reviews uh, of films that are coming out either this week or have recently come out last week. So the very first film we're going to look into is Black Death. Now Craig, you saw this and I understand this is uh, Chris for Smith's latest film, um, I recently saw one of his films, Triangle, and was uh, was really really impressed. Um, and actually, I think I made, I think I mentioned it on the podcast as well. Um, Smith uh, did uh, Severance and Creep before that, which are both kind of uh, kind of nasty horror films. Tell us a bit about Black Death, and then tell us a bit about your thoughts on it. Um, well, yeah, I saw. Uh, Creep as well and uh, Triangle too. I haven't actually seen Severance, but um, I found Creep and Triangle to both be kind of have some good ideas, but be a little underwhelming. Um, but Black Death really surprised me. Actually, it's uh, set during during the time of the Black Death in in the UK, and it's just as uh, it started to sweep the country, and basically everyone is terrified. Um, the whole country's just going downhill because of this and uh everyone's panicking and they're very scared about what's going on and because of that fear they turn to religion and superstition and to fanaticism and the film has a group of kind of mercenaries with a monk who's played by eddie romaine uh red main even um who travel to a small village that is supposedly not touched by the black death and this small town is led by a supposed necromancer who they are sent out to try and track down and to capture or kill. Um, but what it does is is actually pretty interesting, and it kind of goes, it plays off the two sides of the religious side, uh, represented by the monk and this group of mercenaries, and the pagan side in this village. Um, it's obviously really heavily influenced by things like uh, really strongly the Wicker Man and also to a lesser degree things like Witchfinder General um, and yeah it's, it's got some gruesome horror as well a lot of people have described it as a horror film but I wouldn't strictly say it's a horror film it has elements of horror um, in in the kind of gruesome violence but um, it's yeah it's it's really surprised me really solid film really um, really interesting themes that it was uh, dealing with and uh, I, yeah I as a British film, definitely recommended. I think. Okay, that sounds good. I was a big, big fan of um, of his previous work, uh, Brendan. Um, what do you know of this film? Have you seen this film yet? I haven't, unfortunately. No, um, I'm uh, I'm between blogs, as it were, so I'm uh, not travelling down to London for so many of the screenings. But um, we miss you, Brendan. It's quite nice, isn't it? Uh, in the dark, both hands going into the popcorn furtively at the uh, same time. Um, I, I'm looking forward <laughs> to it, though I've not really been won over by Smith's films yet. I do like him. One thing I didn't say, actually, was that although I did like it and I was impressed by it, I wondered if it was more to do with the script than Christopher Smith's work. Because, I, I too, too, I haven't been bowled over by his films. And here, I think it's the story that really sells the film. 
And he uh, he didn't write the script this time, then, I take it. No, this one isn't him. Dario Polino. Dario Polino. Yeah. He used to uh, be a writer for, for EastEnders, did Smith, and famously he he wrote a scene where um, Doc Cotton sat on the, uh, on the in the park in the middle of the square and de- delivered a bunch of lines from uh, the Thin Blue Line. No, Thin Red Line. The Thin Red Line, not the Thin <laughs> Blue Line, that would be better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a bit of, uh, bit of Ben Alton uh, on the square. No, but um, it, the Terry Malick film, and um, he put a load of that dialogue into Doc Cotton's mouth as a sort of a private joke for himself and you know the three of us watching that would have uh, picked up on it um so you know i i thought of him as a writer first and foremost actually really so i'm, I'm very interested to see what's happening now he's not writing and stuff okay i mean it'd be good to, it'd be good to see how how he does it. i mean i assume that he wrote his other films i think he did write triangle and i think that yes um uh i have to say i was a bit more impressed with with triangle i did i did like creep as well i haven't seen severance but um, I was a big, big fan of uh, of, of Creep and um, kind of what it did, and I enjoyed the. What, what um, did it do? Um, the uh, sense of fear that it created, because obviously being from London and you know being on the uh, being on the underground very late at night, I think he used that that theme um, of of being alone and being trapped in a really different way, because a lot of people could relate to the fact that they were on the underground, and then with the reveal of the monster, sort of halfway through, I think it fell apart. Do you, do you remember that. John? John, what that monster's called? Nope. He's called Craig. Is he called Craig? <laughs> he, <can't laughs> he is, yeah. That's it's it. one thing about that film that always sticks in my head because there's a, and I don't know, it's a minor spoiler really for the film, but there's a moment where it just says in a kind of a monsterish voice, it says Craig. You realise that's his name. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, I was a big fan. I'm looking forward to sort of seeing Black Death as well. Um, I don't know the kind of publicity it's got. It's got good marks everywhere I've seen it. People have been quite happy about it, but um, what kind of. Uh, would draw people in in your opinion um i think probably a lot of people are going to see it for the setting uh it being kind of 14th century and sean bean riding on a horse with a big sword that sort of thing's going to pull a lot of people in but i I've think that film already what... i think oh, yeah, what's <laughs> is it is it the one with the with the hobbits perhaps i think it was the one something rings <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, I'm actually, look, you know, looking forward to it for, uh, for pretty much what what you said, Craig. The fact that it's not just you know hack and slash; it's got a bit of you know a bit of you put a bit of religion to something like that. Then it always kind of as long as there's something interesting to say about it, I'm always interested to see what what Christopher Smith has to do anyway. Now, I think he kind of caught me with uh, with Triangle and 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 Creep. Um, as a, as a director, Craig, are you a fan of his work or? I'm still no. I'm to be honest. This this although I did like this and I I, I talked it up a fair bit in my review. I think, but yeah, did. I'm still not convinced by him as a director. And I did. I made a, a kind of a point at the end of my review of the fact that I wondered if it was more the script that was the elements that I liked. And uh, obviously, he's still got a kind of part to play in bringing that to the screen. But it kind of direction wise, there wasn't anything that impressed me. I mean the. They did do a very good job of recreating the kind of the setting, and it looks looks very authentic. But um, but you know, there there wasn't anything that impressed me greatly, and I'm still not a hundred percent convinced. But he does seem like a really nice guy, and <laughs> and his films aren't you know they're certainly not bad. I mean, I, yeah, I enjoyed Triangle to a degree, and I enjoyed Creep to a degree, but yeah. not not wholly. There, there wasn't they didn't impress me. So I'm I'm really 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 intrigued to see what he does next because if if he pulls another script out 
that he writes himself and directs, and it's a, a blinder, then then I'm going to be properly impressed. But I'm still a little bit cautious, just just because of the the story elements were so the themes. I think is is what made this film so good. Okay, interesting. Right. Well, that's out in a couple of days' time. That's out on the 11th of June here in the UK. I'm hoping it's going to get uh, a bit more of a release elsewhere. It'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, with his film career uh, next. Um, guys, we're going to move on to the next film, which is Greenberg. Um, this is a film that I saw at the start of the week, uh, and I'm only allowed to talk about uh, on the day of release, which is uh, which is the 11th, which is the day the podcast is going to be going out. Um, before we before we actually go into into what I thought of the film, what do you guys think of uh, of the writer director um, of Greenberg? Um, Noah Baumbach is um, he's done a few films before, and I think he really came to the fore with things like Squid and the Whale and, and Margot at the Wedding. Um, Brendan, let's start with you. What is your kind of impression of him? <laughs> he came to the fore with Margot at the Wedding. Uh, that's really funny. I think he sent himself to the back of the line with Margot at the Wedding. Um, I think uh, I think he probably gives himself like a ten out of ten. And I think I probably don't. <laughs> okay. What did you think of Squid in the Well? Um, uh, some of it infuriated me. I thought it was relatively simplistic, though the performances were good. And I would watch most of that cast, you know, recreate the Abbey Road cover all day long. <laughs> That's fair enough. Craig, what about you? What do you think of his work? Um, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of Noah Baumbach, actually. I didn't uh dislike at the wedding as much as everyone else did um i liked squib in the while and i i kicking and screaming one of his early films which um doesn't really get enough attention i don't think is a film that i really really enjoy um there's a couple of elements to it that don't work but uh, it's just such a fun film i really like it and his writing work obviously with wes anderson yeah, yeah. um i'm a fan of so yeah i mean i I'd definitely watch anything Noah Baumbach does, to be honest. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure why he gets quite so much criticism. It might be the kind of the... Maybe seen as being a little bit smug, his filmmaking. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, we, we talked about it, didn't we? I think a couple of weeks ago, last week, there was a. It was the Brothers Bloom. It was Ryan Johnson. We were talking about mm. him, and I think a lot. Uh, I then subsequently read a lot of the reviews, and they were saying that it is too clever for its own good. And I didn't Which agree doesn't with that. make sense. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> what, what they mean is it was too clever for me. I couldn't keep up with doesn't it. Doesn't make but, sense. It, no, you're right, exactly. But the thing is, there are, there are films that can come across as very smug and very pleased with themselves and the brothers bloom was not at all that was like a celebration of you know uh, quirky storytelling and you know having really really good characters and in some ways uh greenberg is is um a lot more toned down than that it's obviously it's uh, it's much more simplified in terms of direction there's um uh, some of the some of the performances are very understated people are talking about this and they're using the word mumble core and saying how that's kind of come to the fore and i don't really get what that means i mean i get what it means but i don't think it really helps particularly um the basic story of greenberg is uh, ben stiller is kind of um a washed out ex uh, rock musician who um come who basically has failed in everything that he's tried to do he then uh, returns after a period in a mental hospital to uh to to stay at his brother's house um his brother's very rich and he's got an enormous house and uh, he basically comes in he shuffles on the, in you know on, on the scene and the only person in the house because they were gone to uh, gone on holiday is uh, is greta gerwig's character um who's florence who's his brother's pa if you like and um you can kind of guess what happens because they're both very introverted um they're both sort of seeking them uh you know 
they're kind of seeking love and they're kind of not seeking love. They're just kind of seeing what happens and they kind of see a spark in each other. And the rest of the film is talking about, um, it's, it's kind of like their love story um, and their failure to fall in love story. And also it's, um, it deals with Ben Stiller's kind of revisiting of all his old friends and uh, Reece Siffins plays um, one of the members of the band who he used to hang around with. And they've all kind of had their, had their burnout and they're now married. They have kids and, uh, ben Stiller's character has has none of these things. He's kind of just sort of stuck in time. And one of the things that he says a lot to people when they test them and they say to him, "How are you? you know, how are you doing now? What are you up to?" He keeps saying things like, "I'm really trying to do nothing right now." And, the, and you know that, that 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 kind of says it all about his character. But what I uh, enjoyed about the film um, mostly, I think, was the character of Florence. Was Greta Gerwig's character? She has this quality and uh, it, it's visible from the very, very first frame that she's even in. Uh, uh, yeah. The word that I um, came up with when I was watching it and, and afterwards, and I've been thinking about it is she appears very naked uh, and she does literally appear naked, but that's got nothing to do with it. She's, you know, it, it's, Are you it, sure that's got nothing, it's to, got do nothing to do with it. <laughs> and, and I had to tell you why, because the, the sex scenes in it, are the most unerotic thing I can ever think of. In fact, it, it borders on farce. And um, you've got when you have someone like um, Ben Stiller, who uh, you know, in some ways, has made his you know career on being one step away from just going absolutely crazy. Do you know what I mean? There's like the Ben Stiller crazy. He is almost fighting against that a little bit because his character is um, is required to always be on the edge a little bit. And when I was watching, I was thinking. Is he is he going to pull on the patented stiller craziness and and go mad? And actually, one of the triumphs of the film is the fact that when he does finally um, work out what is wrong with his life, he, he he does go crazy, but he he never overplays it and he never does it too much. And I think that is that is that's a real success. And the chemistry that, that they've got, that Stiller and Gerwig have got on screen, is is just fantastic because he's so dark and she is so light, and yet they are so similar in terms of being very introverted in terms of being very lost and it's kind of like they're they're grabbing at each other as they're sinking do you know what i mean they're sort of sinking further and further into this pit of oblivion trying to grab onto each other to hoist themselves up and it and it you know i'm not going to spoil it but um a, a lot of the scenes between them are very understated and then at the same time very painful to watch especially greta gerwig um telling a few stories of her past um that start out she's sort of laughing about them and then as she says them to Ben Stiller's character she realises that actually she's really sad and you know they're pretty pathetic stories and the way that she changes it my god I mean it just it's one of those performances where you sort of can't believe that you've never seen this person do this before and um, uh, the fact is that even though the film is um, obvious in terms of what it wants to do it's um, there are certain uh, scenes and, and, and setups that are, that are right out of the um, very naturalistic school of, uh, of, of, of directing and yet the, the characters and to some extent the writing um, really really plays to the, to the strengths of the, um, of the performers and I was really impressed with it I, I don't know how it's going to come across because I think people could um, people could uh, see it as a, as, a, as a Ben Stiller comedy and it's, and it's really really not do you know what I mean and hopefully that might draw some people in they might be surprised by it but um, any of you guys going to see this one at all? Um I'm interested. The description is melodrama. He was a rock and roll musician. He went to the mental hospital. He's sinking into a pit of oblivion. Your words there, I believe. Uh, yes, fine. I think so, yeah. Um, and it sounds like a melodrama pitched at lack of drama, right? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And that's quite a sort of... Um, that's quite a common thing in this sort of, like, 
Uh, let's just say for films I've got Greta Gerwig in them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, it sounds insufferably, painfully, pathetically dull. I don't know what it's going to tell me. I think I'm going to wallow in navel-gazing that really, you know, you know the way people used to whip Woody Allen? But his films had themes. They had ideas. Mm. He, he coalesced elements of his films together to make quite cogent arguments. I'm not sure Mr. Baumbach does that. I think he just paddles in the same pool and that passes for some sort of cogency. You know, he goes around the same track for an hour and a half. Not sure that's good enough. This sounds like I mean this sounds like it's it's pretending to be a lot lot more low key than it really is. It sounds like it's quietly histrionic. I don't know. I hope it's not. But it sounds like it it's like Oh, uh, like we're really, really downplaying this. No, we're really downplaying that. <laughs> it's, it's not. I mean, the thing is, yes, I think you could level all those criticisms at it, and I think if you go into it with potentially that in mind, it then 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 you'll come out, you know, having all of your arguments totally validated. But for me, I uh, I, I got caught up in it, and I think that a lot of other people did as well. And it mainly was performances, and I think it's. You, I kind of get your Woody Allen um, analogy there, but this is not, you know, Woody Allen. This is um, someone who's got kind of a different agenda. And in some ways it is just replaying the same themes and there's not a huge amount of, of, uh, of um, character development in it, but there is a little bit. And I think um, one of, one of the, the sort of problems I had with it was that you, uh, he, he really set these, um, set, set these characters up to uh to either fall in love or to not fall in love and it will go terribly wrong and at the end of it i'm not going to give too much away about it but there's um he doesn't take it far enough to give you an answer and i think in some ways people might come out being a bit annoyed about that but um while there is navel gazing the performances for me really really made it so i I had a good time with it um let's quickly move on because we are running quite late let's talk about four three two one now Brendan, you saw this yesterday. Craig, you saw it about three or four weeks ago. To give you a bit of context, um, Craig's review on the site uh, was pretty harsh against it, and that got um, the attention of the director, Noel Clark, and he has uh, said that he will come on to the podcast and he will talk about it, um, and uh, we can then you know, talk about the kind of things that he was trying to do with it and, uh, and, yeah. and how he succeeded it. Um, so, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about it now. Just kind of give give your thoughts, Brendan. Um, your your three word review I can't repeat uh, on air as it is, but um, give us a bit of a, a an idea about what you thought of Noel Clark's four three two one. It's not a very good film, John. Um, okay, <laughs> it's not a very good film at all. That's not to say there aren't things in it that that aren't executed with some aptitude, because there are mm. right. Uh, much as there are um, on on you know just about any film shoot. Uh, some people executing their roles with, with aptitude. Um, and there is the occasional little bit of something that fulfills its own ambition. But by and large, this film doesn't even meet its own ambitions. It's a staggeringly misguided concept, and it hinges on a, on a, a dramatic crux. It's one of these films where they show you the end at the start and we're supposed to be invested in seeing how it gets to this end, right? right. And the way that it actually reconciles the end with what we've seen before is just pathetic. In terms, of, in terms of execution? For it. Oh, it's woeful. Uh, Craig will recall, there's two lines of dialogue that we hear at the start 
delivered by three of our main characters to the fourth one. A young girl stood on a bridge, and there's some characters stood opposite. One of them points a gun at her and shouts something along the lines of, put down the diamonds, or something, <laughs> in a ferocious and fierce way. And then another one says, you've got what you want, now give us what we want. Now, at the end of the film, we hear these lines again, but in a slightly different context, and it's absolutely woeful. To call it implausible, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. It's a, it's an utterly, utterly contrived moment in a film full of appalling contrivances, reliance on the most ridiculous coincidence. Um, it's, it's weak source plotting all the way through. And, and I do think that this film is, is, is either very, very condescending and, and, and it's the product of someone thinking that, frankly, this is good enough for people, yeah. or it's someone's best try when actually uh, their best try is not quite up to the standard that an audience should be told to expect. Okay, but give us something good about the film then. Tell us, because, I mean, there must be something here, because a lot of people seem to enjoy it. Uh, it hasn't done... It hasn't done uh, too badly at all. I mean, in, in terms of people, you know, the, the buzz about it. Tell us what people would, would enjoy about it. If you're a teenage girl and you want to see a representation of a teenage girl that says she's a bit tough, she's a movie cliche, she's a bit br- prickly and a bit bristly, in the sense that a lot of boys enjoy seeing these particular representations of themselves, it's one of those films that offers the representations of girls that way. The, the quasi girl power perspective. Um, post-feminist tits hanging out, holding a gun, sort of uh, <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and I think there's a, a strong response to this form of representation in girls who see it as quotes kick-ass or badass or something, right? Um, as their mothers, uh, like Emily Watson in uh, Cemetery Junction, quietly cry themselves to sleep in despair over the. <laughs> trajectory of their, their girl's uh, life. Um, so that, that's, that's a positive. Um, and an, another positive, I suppose... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's little bits. There's little bits of plot manoeuvre that are OK. Kevin Smith seems very natural. It's an amazingly prescient scene. This scene was shot way before Kevin Smith's United Airlines shenanigans. But it seems like it's a reference to it. Um, because the whole sort of intro, his whole meet cue, is that it's a little bit big to be sitting in an airplane seat. Um, so that's quite amusing. I, I thought Kevin Smith was probably the best thing about it. And I, I don't particularly like Kevin Smith anymore. And uh, I'm not saying he was necessarily particularly good in it. But he was, for me, one of the high points. Ben Miller was good. Yeah, actually, the the parents weren't that bad, and I did wonder, like watching it, I I start, especially when I heard kind of the laughter coming from one very small section of the cinema that I was at. Um, I did feel suddenly strangely old, even though I'm not particularly old. I, I suddenly felt really old that I was thinking, oh, these parents, oh, it's a shame Ben Miller's in this. He's a bit better than that, really, and. I was thinking, God, these teenagers are irritating. And I just felt like an old curmudgeon for a second. The fact Brendan's, I think, struggled there to find good things, really. And I mean, I, it just, it doesn't work in so many different ways. I've heard one excuse come out recently that one reviewer who said that they loved it was that um, it's not supposed to be taken seriously, that it's, 
it's kind of a deliberate cartoon and that when I wasn't you see taking that, it seriously were you taking it seriously craig it was impossible um, to take it seriously yes exactly it was impossible to take it seriously but then there were moments where it certainly was trying to be taken seriously because i think some of the themes that it touched on for just brief seconds and just mishandled were were kind of quite serious themes and it really really mishandled them and i think uh yeah, I, I just I couldn't take it seriously. It was just ridiculous, but not ridiculous in any particularly fun or entertaining way. And and like uh, Brendan was saying about the storylines as well, the way it it had moments where because of the structure of the film, where you see it uh, four times, um, the same kind of thing roughly told out four times, but from a different viewpoint, um, it, it tries to recontextualize things that you saw earlier in the film, and where one of the characters seems kind of uh, very mean and unlikable at the start when you first see her behaving. Then in a later scene, when you see it from her point of view, I think she's supposed to not look like that anymore. And it's supposed to recontextualise that thing you've seen and you to think, oh, oh, maybe I'd miss... Re- re- <laughs> she was misrepresented. But then you think... Is this no, the bit where em- just- em- Emma Roberts is driving off in the car? It's yes, like, that exact she's moment. A jerk. She's No. And I, I just think in those moments where the film's clearly trying to do something, where it's actually trying to be taken seriously, it's trying to deliberately do something there, and it fails. So even in those moments, brief moments, where it tries to do something that borders on something interesting or entertaining, it fails. So it, it just fails across the board. I just, yeah, terrible. I, I've never seen the Spice Girls movie, but I walked out of it and thought, oh, maybe I should give that a shot. Maybe it's not as bad. It's a completely different beast. Um, the Spice Girls film uh, seeks to seeks to be pantomimeish, whereas this film purports to be in the sort of post Tarantino vein. If there is any one film that this film most clearly owes a debt to, it's Go, uh, the film John August wrote and um, Doug, Doug Lehman directed. Uh, it, in fact, it's quite quite. Sort of, I, I can't say that it's full of homages or rip-offs. I couldn't be sure whether it's one or the other. Not I close. thought of another good thing. Go on. There's this bit where we're at the Westfield Centre, and it's this sort of like bit we see quite a lot. It's this shot I keep going back to. And we really don't need to keep going back to it, but we do go back to it. And um, they've managed to stitch together four motion control camera shots, so it looks like one. Okay. I mean, you know, somebody in the post-production, <laughs> they'll snoo their way around the uh, software. Okay, well, Noel Clark is is is, is saying he's going to come on the podcast. Maybe next week, maybe week after. Um, so keep some of these thoughts in mind, and we can maybe talk to him a little bit about um, what he was trying to do and uh, and how it's gone down. So four three two one was out last week, I think, in the UK. I think it's coming out in the US maybe next week. Um, but um, uh, we'll hopefully talk a bit more about that with the director himself. So that should be fun. Um, we're going to move on from our film reviews for this week. We're now going to look at. Um, uh, a question actually we were going to do some films but there's nothing really that's really come out this uh, this last few days to really warrant much um much discussion so there was a question um that craig had um and he wrote a post on on, on the site um just today and it sparked it was sparked off because um one of our uh, one of our writers said that he had to watch a film on a phone and um uh Craig was obviously very against this, and he wrote up a whole post about the sort of the uh, the merits and the lack of merits of um, of watching a film on a device other than a TV, or, uh, or rather, other than uh, you know being in a cinema. So, just going to get a few uh, get a few things rolling here. Craig, tell us a little bit about your about your argument uh, for uh, and against 
um, watching a movie on like another device. Well, yeah, it it came out of as well the the recent announcement of kind of Netflix on the iPhone and things like this, and that uh, suddenly my Twitter stream erupted with people talking about um, watch how excited they were to watch a film on their phone. And Roger Ebert tweeted that he would never do it, and that seemed to get this massive backlash. And I mean, on on Twitter, I kind of I follow people I know and people who like uh, people who like films. That's about it, really. And it seemed to be all these people who liked films that were either saying they'd watch things on their phone or were saying that Roger Ebert was an old curmudgeon. And I just found it baffling that I I didn't even think it was a question that. I, would, I mean, I'd never watch a film on a phone. I don't, I don't see how that would be a pleasurable, pleasurable experience. And a lot of people have said to me, oh, but convenience, you know, I, I get a train. And I mean, I get a train every day and, or a bus every day and I get long train rides all the time. I, you know, there's other things I can do. I could take a book. There's, you don't have to watch a film if you're, or you're on a train. And, and there's better things to be doing and you can save that experience for another time. I don't, I don't see why people are so suddenly compelled to watch a film on their, on their, on the train just, be, just because they're sitting there for an hour and a half. Partly, I think it's novelty. Yeah. I think the fact is that I mean, I've I've watched TV programs, I've, you know, um, on 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 my iPhone, which is um, kind of you know the nice easy way of doing it. But there are films that I've got on my on my Mac that I that I could easily you know put over onto my phone, but I've just never, I've just never ever had the um, the inclination to do it. And it, it was that um, David Lynch. Um, thing that i sent over to you craig the sort of the infamous mm. iphone advert that um uh sort of the fan-made iphone advert where you have david lynch coming out very very soundly against watching movies on a on a phone and he makes you know a very valid point and um i think it's partly novelty i think the fact is especially now with the ipad um you know you can be watching things on there and um they're sort of all you know there, there are sort of problems with, with that but brendan um as an owner of an ipad do you uh, expect you'll be watching many films on that. I don't know about many. Um, it, it, it depends. Um, there are contexts in which I'll definitely be playing films on it, but I guess that's a different a different question. Mm. Um, it's a more complicated issue than it first appears. This one, actually, um, it's like is it your first experience of the film? What's the purpose in watching the film? These these things need to be to be to be thought of too, but there's definitely an element of our relationship, uh, a cognitive level, when we're watching a film that the scale of the image uh, impacts upon us in a strange way. Because let's think about this for a second. We're sat in the cinema. We're about five rows back, and the screen's about thirty feet tall. And there's a close-up of a wristwatch. There ain't no way you can position yourself near a wristwatch in real life to simulate that experience, right? Yeah. So there's this sort of thing going on there where all these cues and signifiers are sort of tricking us into having this experience that's quite like our normal sensory experience in real life, right? But there's always this scale issue. And then there's also this issue of spontaneous change of scale, right? As we hop about from shot to shot, scale can change completely. Indeed, we can go from a mid-shot to a close-up or a long shot to a close-up of the same subject and the scale can change so at the heart of our relationship with a film somewhere in there very important to it is our relationship with the scale of the objects okay now this is getting even more complex than we've got 3d cinema because our sense of the scale of things can be altered on an through another means as well and we could be given different cues so it's not 
that, I mean, it, I, I think it's that after a screen is a cert, above a certain size, these sort of factors kick in. Um, and then there's also the whole argument about being bathed in light. If I'm going to go and see, I don't know, my blueberry nights, right? And I'm sitting in the dark room and those colours are falling out on me and everything I see is illuminated by that screen. Um, that's a different relationship than, than if I'm actually getting uh, the illumination from, from elsewhere, right? Mm. Makes sense? Yeah. So it's quite complicated in terms of what you lose, but in terms of what you gain, is it can, you can actually draw focus onto, onto the syntactical and grammatical elements. Um, David Mamet's always argued that film is told through juxtapositions of images in the sequence. It doesn't matter how big they are. If you go from a shot of a man to a shot of a notebook, and that's your storytelling, it doesn't matter if the shot of the man is 50 foot tall. That element of the storytelling is actually still completely functional. Mm. Um, as a film teacher, I have to show film. Does it make any difference if I show on a 28 television, 28 inch television set or my iPad? Um, and the truth of the matter is it, it makes almost no difference, actually, at that scale. Uh, no measurable difference. Um, but I do obviously encourage my students to go to the cinema to watch films. But I think it's complicated. Do I want to see films for the first time on an iPad? No. Would I turn to my iPad to study a moment? Yeah, I think I probably would. Yeah, but I mean, Brendan, you're talking about an iPad, which is, um, I'm not sure quite how big. What is it? Seven and a half inches diagonal size? It's about nine. Nine. Okay, and it's it's not quite wise. No, oh, no, it's four three, isn't it? The iPad screen. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, comparison would be an iPod or an iPod Touch or something, which is between two and a half and three and a half, four inches. Um, it's, 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 that's minuscule. Proportionately, proportionately, I'm only looking at. I've got basically a quarter of the surface area. I think in terms of hmm. useful for for looking at a video image, right? Um, yeah, it's smaller, but but what again? Does this make any difference when recognition of the object is all that the filmmaker is re- requiring me to do? Uh, you know, in a sort of a from a, 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 a mammoth or an almost Einsteinian sort of perspective on it, the scale of the image is is there, from their point of view, and not from my point of view. I have to say, but from their point of view, it's irrelevant. Um, and again, if what I'm studying is the edit, if what I'm studying is um, image juxtaposition or sequencing. Um, that doesn't really matter. That's that's very kind of niche sort of view, though, in terms of what people are going to do with watching a film. Yeah, because I mean, most people are going to sit down and watch a film. That they're they're not there to study a, a tiny element of it, but that their experience and what why they're watching a film is because they want to watch a film, and it's it's a kind of a more simplistic approach. I, th- I, think. I think that's I think that's true, but then we've got all these other axes on which we have to actu- answer as well. If we watch a film on our television sets uh, for a terrestrial aerial or whatever, we're losing a lot of resolution. Mm, so but this is, this, is, this, this is the thing that I kind of wanted to bring up in my article, though, is that I, I didn't want to rally against the idea of watching films on your phone. It's not the issue of, I think, watching a film in the cinema is correct and on your phone is incorrect. It's that I think it's a scale of compromise and that watching a film on your phone is the very bottom of that. And I don't see, purely just for that tiny bit of convenience, for me at least, that it's in any way worth it, that that compromise is just too big a compromise. And 
and you're not you're not getting enough, or I'm not getting enough when I watch a film in that way, or do, would watch a film in that it's way. Interesting. And it watch- illuminates it illuminates what you want from a film, Craig. That's what that's doing. That's telling us mm. what your what your relationship with the film is like. I I'm not sure though. I think you said about the scale, but there's other elements as well. But watching a film, your surroundings and the the kind of emotional investment that you can get in a film is magnetised, I think, when you watch it at the cinema. And it's also magnetised when you watch it, say, on your, on your own or with someone else in, a, in your home with the lights turned off on a large television with the sound turned up loud with no distractions. And I think... I remember uh, hearing this David is a- This is absolutely true, but one would also say it's magnified by wearing a good pair of headphones. Fair enough, but I think what, I mean, Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think partly what you're saying is that it's the experience of um, of, of seeing a film and kind of enjoying a film for the first time. And I'm thinking of, of films, um, I remember seeing Lost Highway in uh, in a cinema, and uh, it was the first time I'd seen it, and it kind of, I, I loved that film, and the effect, the tangible physical effect that film had on me uh, was made all the more um, real because of the fact that I was watching it in this audience and it was you know it was it was obviously it was dark and the sound was really really pumping and you know the the images on on screen were given you know the the height the clarity of it all that experience of seeing that i would not have got if i'd have you know downloaded it through itunes and, and stuck it on my phone and i was watching it on the train um and i'm kind of pleased with that and it's my own personal choice that i decide um if i want to see a film that i'll i'll always try and see it in the cinema first and if I can't, then then I'm dead on TV. I don't think I would ever see a film that I really, really wanted to see um, on a phone for convenience's sake. But it is a personal thing, and you have people who are much more savvy. You have people who are much more willing to um, to just stick a film on their on their iPhone and, um, mm. and sort of have it with them as they go. Is it, uh, is it savvy? I, I lay in bed a week ago and I watched Pulse on the BBC iPlayer. Yeah, my my iPad. I was in bed, it was dark, my wife was next to me, I had the headphones on, it must have been uh, so far away from my face, so close to my face, proportionately, that actually it was filling 98% of my field of vision. Um, it didn't make, make the TV show any better, unfortunately, um, but uh, I was engaged with it in, in some respect, right, and, and it looked vibrant to a large degree, much more so than a VHS ever would have. Um, but I think my last point about this whole thing that I hadn't managed to get is that, yeah, I think a lot of people who are watching stuff on their phone are just sort of coughing it off, aren't they? I don't think they'd really invest in a film anyway, to be honest. Well, but no, it's I, that... I, I'm not Sorry. sure how invested... Anyone who's sort of like, oh, yeah, I'll watch on my phone, I'll watch on my phone, love it. <laughs> I don't know how invested in films they actually are, actually, and I, 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 I'd like some of them to leave comments or email in yeah, or no, put no. something around the brick and toss <laughs> it my window because I think that actually they're not really engaged at all. They may be taking school. They may be trying to tell people that they've watched films. They may be vegging out in front of these films, which, let's face facts, isn't really watching a film at all. Uh, and that's why four, three, two, one came into being, because people are prepared to do that. Um, so, you know, they're the fault, really, not the phone. In some ways, it's like convenience, and if people say that you have it on your phone to, like, have it through your commute or whatever, then 
you aren't really paying attention to it and it's it's in some ways it's to pass the time I would have thought for a lot of people but um, let, let's draw and a mind under that goal just, Craig can I just say one last thing um, yeah just to pick up what Brendan said I think yeah that's the thing um, David Simon said about uh, The Wire that um, I'm not allowed to swear on the podcast am I you can you can uh, re- replace it with a TV friendly alternative <laughs> um, he, he was asked about the average viewer and how um, there was difficulty with the wire that people might not be able to follow it if you know someone's doing their ironing whilst watching it they won't know what's going on and he just replied F the average viewer um, and I, I just can't help but agree and I think yeah if, if someone tells me they've watched a film and then they say they've watched it on their phone I can't really value what they've said about it because I don't feel like kind of what Brendan was saying that I don't feel like They've actually watched it. They just, yeah, threw it away. They just kind of, it was a casual, passive experience where they can't have surely been engaged with it enough. And, uh, yeah. You know who tell you me, are. Tell me, if I, <laughs> tell, tell me if, you, if I'm talking rubbish and you engage with the film massively on your phone. I'm fascinated to hear about well, it. Um, I can't see it happening. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. If, if, you, if you listening out there, if you have enjoyed or indeed enjoyed a, a film on your phone, let us know. You can... Uh, write in about anything to mouth off at heyyouguys.co.uk um, or go to the site Craig's post went up today you can um, you can write uh, your you know your comments in there or on Facebook as well there's a kind of a thing a thing going there just let us know and 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 one thing what? um if you could get specially features on your phone I'd love to be able to walk around walking my dog listening to audio commentaries and then when they refer to a bit of the film I could whip it out and look just to make sure I'm thinking it. do you see what I'm saying and like, oh it is specific oh it's that bit they're talking about okay I'll put it back in my pocket <laughs> but that's uh, I would love audio commentaries in my ears while I walk my dog yes please okay well you can do that I mean that, that sounds good I mean I listen to, to a lot of movie podcasts obviously when I'm going around so uh, very much like this one so um, but but do write in if you have any if you have any um experience of that good or bad um let's move on from that uh, and we'll very quickly get to our rip from the crypt this week now in honor of uh, of our special guest this week um uh, justin Steele, whose uh, interview about his film death and cremation you can hear uh, after this section we're gonna take a um a theme for our rip from the crypt this week which is um death and cremation uh, not surprisingly so we're going to uh, recommend a film that we've seen and that we think other people might enjoy um i went first last week craig you go first this week then i'll go then brendan all right okay cool yeah mine's uh, a slight little cheat on two levels i'll admit um it's actually a tv series i'm going to recommend and it's, okay. yeah it's not actually that obscure but um i've got an irritating habit it seems of recommending things that people can't find so this one's actually reasonably easy to get, and it's uh, Homicide: Life on the Street. Woo! And the reason I re- <laughs> the reason the wire. <laughs> Whoa! That's <laughs> um, another debate. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, I, that's in a way why I want to recommend it because uh, the wire was has been such a phenomenal success, and um, I think it's been a phenomenal success in a really long tail way it's it's taken a long time for people to engage with it and it it wasn't the huge success it kind of is now when it first aired and a lot of people have started talking about it well that people have talked about it for quite a while now but i don't think homicide life on the street gets quite the love it deserves um, and it was david simon's kind of previous project uh, well previous but one project um to the wire and it's a police procedural drama, and 
it's just a really, really, really good police procedural drama, and one that the characterization is just phenomenal in. And um, I think there's standout episodes from the seven series that are are just incredible pieces of television. There's some real low points, I'll be honest, um, particularly in the later seasons, and there was a, a TV movie that followed it that wasn't great. Um, so I will say it's not 100% great, but it's seven seasons and a TV movie. There's hun- a couple of hundred hours of television for you to watch. So if you've never seen it, it's certainly worth checking out. And it's, I think, occasionally play on Amazon, do the, the bo- each series box set for about a tenner. So it's definitely worth picking up. And uh, I picked it this week because um, obviously the death theme uh, fits very well. And also because Daniel Baldwin is in Death and Cremation and he was in... Homicide Life on the Street, uh, playing one of the detectives. Okay. And um, you will you will notice if you're a fan of The Wire, going back and watching Homicide, a lot of the same actors will pop up, um, even if it's just for a few moments. Um, some will be regulars, but, um, yeah, it's it's a great series. You see, I've never seen that. I've also never seen The Wire, which I think is uh, is grounds for kind of kicking me off every kind of podcast and internet site possible. But um, it's the kind of thing that everyone has told me to 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 do and I think I've got them somewhere I think it's um, I think I've got box sets lying about which I just haven't had the time to sit down because of course you need a massive commitment and I've barely got time enough to watch all the films that you know for, uh, for the site so I think um, there will come a point where I do actually watch The Wire and you're now telling me I've got another seven seasons <laughs> of something else to watch well, yeah it's 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 not there's a thing about Homicide though that because it is a police procedure and it is a very week by week yeah um, series much more than the wire it's not quite as overarching there are overarching stories that pay off later on i mean there's even things in the first season that you will see pay off in the seventh season but um i mean i had watched bits and pieces of it when i was a teenager and i i'd always kind of enjoyed it but i think i've maybe watched it a little bit more because it had guest directors doing it okay. but um last year i watched the whole lot um in the space of about a month or two <laughs> and it was it was a surprisingly easy watch, to be honest, because it's when compared to some television programs that are very, I don't know, I don't want to kind of say this is light or anything, but because it is a, it was a more kind of relaxed time for television and because it was NBC, it's, it is an easier watch maybe than The Wire. It's I don't be, want to kind of criticise it in, in a way like that. But it's going to be it compared is, though, isn't it? It's always going to be compared to The Wire, I would have thought, especially, you know, having the, having the connections. But Brendan, you, you woohooed. Does that mean that you're yeah, a fan? great. You know, actually, you know, what can I add? I'll tell you an interesting bit of trivia about it. You go for it. It actually takes place in the same universe as The Wire because Richard Bowser mm. turns up playing his detective in The Wire. I mean, of course, he's also turned up playing that character in um, Arrested Development and uh, in Deep Sesame Street. Um, and Law and Order as well. They right, even of have course, yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, so, I know, this character's gone around. Um, and I think he's a linchpin of a really interesting phenomenon. And I don't know if you know about the, um, the hypothesis of the te- Tommy Westfall multiverse. No, you're going to have to explain that to us. The Tommy Westfall multiverse is a hypothesis that says about 98% of American television takes place in the same universe. Okay. Uh, and what's even better is that this entire universe is inside the head of an autistic child. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if either of you ever watched uh, Sin Elsewhere. No. No. 
But the last episode of Sin Elsewhere, it's revealed that the entire series took place in the imagination of an autistic child looking into a snow globe. What? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember this because uh, when, when Lost was uh, when people were talking about the ending of Lost, I remember that being brought up quite a lot. That that was oh, really? okay. Oh, wait, so- I thought that was a joke. I thought people were making that up, like um, at the end of uh, or when Dallas when Thingy stepped out of the shower. Is that is that is that true? Or, or, or moonlighting as well. Moonlighting is a good example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. all of which actually take place in the Tommy Westfall multiverse. By the way, exactly. um, <laughs> so there's uh, all these strange interlinked parallel. Uh, plot lines that take place in a sort of a uh, ever mutating universe inside an autistic child's head, and this includes Homicide, uh, Life on the Streets, and, and indeed The Wire. Okay, that sounds crazy. Well, that's a bit of a bit of extra reason to watch Homicide. Then, uh, thanks for that, Craig. Um, I'm going to move on to my group from the crit this week, and it's it's a bit of an odd choice. It does feature death. It does feature uh, cremation. Also, um, it was a film that I was sent. Um, by uh, by a company in in the states, um, I get sent quite a lot of of, of random DVDs, and um, I don't I, I usually don't have time to watch that many of them unless I'm really interested in them. Uh, but they I'll have them. Well, I, uh, next time I see you, I'll bring them. I've got quite a lot of interesting ones. But um, uh, one of the ones that I picked up was called The Living Wake, and it was 2007 film. It was directed by a guy called Sol Tryon. And it's, it stars and was written by a guy called Mike O'Connell, who I think, let me just check the uh, the internet thing that he was involved with. I think it was uh, Funny or Die. I think he's involved with that as a writer and as a performer. And this film, the, the reason I watched it is because uh, Jesse Eisenberg was in it. I think it was one of his earlier roles. And it deals with this guy called Mike O'Connell, um, uh, played by Mike O'Connell. And he's, um, he is like a, he's a self-proclaimed genius. He's called K. Roth Binu. And he lives in this, uh, s- rural part of, um, of, of America. I think it's Maine. And I think it's, it's a very sort of small villagey, uh, part of it. And, um, it chronicles, um, his last day on earth. Basically he knows he's going to die at a particular time. And he has resigned himself to this fact. In some ways he celebrates it. And he, he being this genius artist, all the rest of it, he then goes around to all the people that he knows in his, in his sort of small, small village, tells them, he invites them to his wake. Hence the, hence the title living wake. Um, and, uh, and you sort of see that this, you know, you see, see this, uh, this man's story through the people that he knew and through their reaction to him. Um, he visits a brothel and he visits a library to get them to accept the books that he's written, which are actually really funny and terrifying children's books. Um, he gives a reading of one of his, um, of one of his books on a, uh, on the library steps and it starts out very cute and ends up being really horrific. And it's actually, it's, it's, it's one of the better moments of the, uh, of the film. It's it's a really unusual film because of the way that uh, O'Connell plays this character. It's almost um, it's always partly like restoration comedy, um, bordering on pantomime. Um, he he sort of he he announces everything. He bursts into song occasionally. His relationship with with the Jesse Eisenberg character, who is kind of like his biographer, his right hand man. Um, it really reminded me of some uh, sort of you know comedies um, from like Russian literature. It was really interesting in the way that they kind of played off each other. And when I I saw it and I put my review up on the site just last week, um, and I can't work out if it's if it's genius or if it's just really really bizarre. Um, it, it certainly kept me engaged. It wasn't as funny as I think that you know the um, the writers wanted it to be, but it was a really interesting film in the way that it 
in the way that it dealt with this guy, he has to be an engaging character, otherwise you just lose it completely. Um, it's it's quite a nice you know device in terms of um, sort of telling someone's last day and and, and their story. Um, so that you know, there's the death, and right at the end, of course, he gets cremated. But um, guys, have you seen this film at all? No, I haven't. Finally, you won. Excellent. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can't believe it. Okay, well, I've trying to leave Trump Brandon. Well, uh, I'll, I'll lend it to you next time. Um, next time I see you, because it's it's the kind of thing. I, I don't know how you know much distribution. You're wrong. It, it's kind of now. Maybe it's just a poster I saw for it, mm. and maybe it's part of you know what you were saying. But it's a bit of a with Nan and I influence here, right? I hadn't considered that, and because the film is, um, it's so centered on this uh, on on this one guy, and I think that um, the Jesse Eisenberg character is this really nice counterpoint in in some ways in in the way that Paul McGann was to you know to, to Richard D. Grant uh, with Nanolite is is far far funnier, and I think this is a bit too uh, obscure, a bit too pantomime in in the way that the um, the main character, this this sort of self-proclaimed genius, kind of goes about his his business. I think, and also just just in the way that he talks, in the way that he interacts with people, it is so over the top to be to be considered satire. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but to be honest with you, I don't know anyone else who's who's seen it. I think you know, I think there are a couple of reviews on online, but it's the kind of film that I thought. I, I enjoyed it, and I and, and I enjoyed the characters in it. Um, I, I think it really will polarise people, so hopefully people will, will will pick it up after this and, and, and kind of let me know. So, um, Okay, well, if none of you guys have seen let's move on. Brendan, let's do your rip from the crypt for this week. Okay, I'm just still a bit weirded out. What, that I've um, that, that recommended one that you haven't seen? Uh, yeah, I hate that when that happens. <laughs> I need it now. I need an envelope now. Jiffy bag. <laughs> yeah. um, did, you, okay. did you get around seeing uh, Death Sport, Brendan? Woohoo! That's <laughs> two weeks. <laughs> and I'm going to watch it once more by the weekend. Um, okay. Um, I've sort of gone down the most obvious route you can probably imagine anyone to go down, really. And I've chosen a Czech movie. Okay. Uh, and it's called The Cremator. Um, or, or or a Czech title that I won't, I won't butcher. It's from 1968, um, which was really when the Czech New Wave was getting into gear. Um, it actually features uh, Jury Menzel, who directed Closely Observed Trains in it as an, as an actor. But it stars, uh, it stars a guy who I think looks like Sam Raimi. Um, uh, but he sort of plays it a bit like Peter Lorre in, in M, a little bit. And he's a cremator who takes great pride in his work. And he uses Buddhism to explain to people why he's proud of his work. And he sees the difference between cremation and, and burial, that cremation allows a quick dispersal of the soul for reincarnation. Mm. But... Um, this uh, film is set in Prague and the Nazis uh, occupy and come to power. So there very soon becomes uh, a twist to, to uh, cremation in society, shall we say. His skills as a cremator are to be called upon. Okay. When was it from? What year was it? 68. Okay. There's an amazing scene in it. I mean, there are these 
truly frustrating 1960s sort of things. He's like pop zooms, um, <laughs> absurd, absurd close-ups at times. There is a sequence which half works and half doesn't, where he's sort of following a woman around. She's looking in the camera and she goes away. She closes doors. Actually, it's a little bit like something from Sam Raimi's Crime Wave, essentially. Um, but there's a sequence in it where they go to a fun fair. And he's not really interested in anything in the fun fair. It's all too sort of like happy. And then they go into this sort of really grotesque sort of waxworks display. And there's these waxworks being played by humans moving like automatons. And it's kind of beautiful and weird and creepy. It's a good film to watch uh, on the same night as uh, Eyes Without a Face or something like that. Um, it, it's got some beautiful uh, design, some 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 great photography um, in terms of the, the lighting and the, the, the you know the, the exposure, um, and some some very imaginative scenes, and ultimately quite a profoundly interesting political notion, and it becomes quite uh, quite a good uh, allegory for discussing elements of Czech culture and Czech history at the same time as talking about what happened with the, the Third Reich. And it's properly recommended. And if you get the disc I've got, which is the British one, um, uh, Second Sight, um, you get like about a quarter of an hour introduction by the Brothers Quay as well. Oh, okay. That's not, I'm, I'm looking on his IMDb page and the guy's still working. He's been. I think that was one of his earlier films. I know. I haven't seen any of his recent films. I was going to ask: Was there anything else that you recommend? I'm really you? disappointed. I mean, in in the seventies, he he wanted to avoid making propaganda, mm. so he made a series of sort of fairy tale films. Okay. And those are the only other. That's the only other sort of period of his work that I've seen. And his version of Beauty and the Beast is is quite sinister, actually. It's quite good. It's not as good as the Disney one, mm. which is which is great, and it's not as good as the uh, the Cocteau one, which is almost as great. But it but it is good. It's interesting looking at some of his work, and literally this is this is just me reading off IMDb because I'm not knowledgeable at all. But Emperor's New Clothes, The Frog Prince. Um, it sounds like a lot of the stuff that like the Magpie and the Wiz, but it sounds it sounds really interesting. It sounds like he's you know he's taking these things and you know it, it was it was a cultural thing though. There was mm. a lot of there, there, there was a push towards uh, folklore in Czechoslovakian cinema at that time, anyway. Mm. And I think he wrote it rather than having to make over films. Okay, well, what we'll do is, like with everything, every every week we always put a, a post up on the website. This will go up on Friday, um, and we'll put trailers, and uh, and from there you can kind of you know find out, order them. Uh, from wherever you want to order them for, um, and you know, and discover more about these these people, these directors, because you know, if if, if for anything, if for nothing else, that's exactly why we want to do this ripping the crypts, so people can discover new films, and um, we'd like to open up the world of cinema to as many people as possible. So I think we've done that tonight with a nicely eclectic selection. Um, all right, guys, uh, I think we should draw it to a close. There, we've uh, we talked, um, done some film reviews, debating the merits of the iPad, iPhone movie watching and also giving you our recommendations from Rip from the Crypt. Um, to let you know after this uh, this episode closes, we're going to be playing an interview that we conducted with uh, with Justin Steele whose film uh, Death and Cremation um, is, uh, is awaiting uh, I think it's um, just in post-production at the moment and it will be out starring Brad Dorff and, uh, and uh, Jeremy Sumter 
And uh, just to warn you before you uh, before you, you you listen to it, the sound quality uh, is not brilliant. I'll do what I can to make it as listenable as possible, and it's really really worth taking your time because it's really interesting to hear a, um, a relatively new director talk about um, entering you know the the horror genre and with with his film um, standing in the middle of all of these remakes and uh, and just getting a film made. It's really interesting to find out from him you know, exactly how he did it and the, the stars that he worked with. And um, it's kind of an interesting uh, look at, you know, basically getting a film made. Um, so uh, so do check that out. That's going to come straight after this. Um, all right. Thanks, guys. That's uh, another, good, uh, another good podcast done. We will see you all next week. Hello everyone, this is John Lyas from Mouth Off the Hey You Guys podcast. What follows is an interview that was conducted by myself and Craig Skinner and Brendan Connolly with Justin Steele, the director of the forthcoming film Death in Cremation. As I've mentioned before, the audio quality is not fantastic, but it is still very listenable. So I do hope that you enjoy it and do leave any comments, any suggestions you have. Mouth Off at heyyouguys.co.uk is the email address. Hope you enjoy the episode. Tell us a little bit about a uh, bit about death and cremation, um, about sort of you know the ideas behind it and the sort of process of of, uh, of filming it and whereabouts you are with it now. Um, well, we're hopefully a few weeks away with it. We just finished uh, music and um, we hope to have sound design in there pretty shortly. So uh, we hope by, by early next month we'll be done with it. But uh, yeah, the story is, is uh, it's sort of an unusual story. It's um, it's basically about a bullied sort of outcast kid. He's a goth kid and. Um, or, or an emo kind of kid, and uh, he's he's bullied, he's picked on, and he basically is fascinated with death. So he finds an after-school job working at a cremation house, and the, the guy who ends up running the place uh, turns out to be a serial killer, played by Brad Dorif. Um and the two of them sort of form this interesting um, father-son kind of relationship. But Brad's character basically figures out that, that you know Jared, Jeremy Sawyer's character, is picked on and and he starts picking off the bullies for him. So it's sort of like, when we put it out there um, a time ago, agencies described it as Dexter meets Karate Kid. <laughs> that's excellent. <laughs> um, and with the new Karate Kid movie coming out, that's, this is a nice different angle. To, <laughs> to, to, yeah, to, exactly, yeah. <laughs> a, little, was, a little darker. I think a serial killer was the one thing that I thought was missing from the original Karate Kid, so I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on that. <laughs> there, there's a moment, isn't there, in the, one of the new Karate Kid uh, clips where Jackie Chan's kind of just beating children up. And I, I did actually think at the time, that's quite weird. <laughs> like, you, you take it one step further. <laughs> I, I wanted just a weird envelope, yes. <laughs> quite right, okay. So this, um, this story that, um, that, you, that you put together with, uh, with your co-writer, tell us a bit about yes. it. Did it sort of come to the screen as you, as you sort of got the original idea for it, or did, did things change as you kind of met with Brad and, and Jeremy? Did it, was it kind of an organic filming process? Very organic. Um, yeah, I'm sure you guys want to know a little bit why something sort of so demented came out of us. Um, and I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll answer that if you like. Uh, you know, what happened was I spent, you know, I've been, I had been just paying my dues and doing all the kind of crappy entertainment jobs that are sort of mandatory as coming up, you know, all the PA gigs and working in, you know, assistant editors and whatever I could get my hands on to, to learn and basically pay the bills. And I finally had got an opportunity to raise a little money to get my first project off the ground. It was a, it was a script called Sins of the Sun, and it was a prison break kind of film. And um, I was real excited. I was all gung ho, and I really thought I was going to get, you know, get it was going to get made. Um, 
but I ended up hitting the wall with it. I never could go anywhere. And so I was so angry. I was so sort of bitter and depressed. And, and a lot of people kept telling me the same thing. Look, we know you, you love character-driven films, and we know you want to do you know, something from the heart and all that kind of stuff, but you got to have some blood in there, and it's got to have some action, and it's got to be genre, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I was just so tired of fighting. I said, you know what? That's it. If you guys really want that, I'm going to do that. So my friend and I sat down, and we, we, we kind of hashed out this this idea, but in the process, that we still had. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice the stuff that I want to tell. And uh, I sort of grew up, as a, you know, fatherless kid, and, and I, so I related to that. And I sort of grew up kind of just turning, you know, generally guys I looked up to into father figures. So I said, you know what? Who would be the most interesting sort of <laughs> guy that we could wander into this kid's life? And that's sort of so. It was sort of we were both in a bitter place, my friend Alec and I, and also we were <laughs> just to be honest. And we both also wanted to, you know, draw on people from real stuff that we experienced. So that was sort of it. I was I was worried that you were going to say that, uh, you know, when you were growing up, you sort of left college and then you got to work, you know, as an undertaker. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you were uh, you were drawn on your experiences as a serial killer there. So <laughs> that's the first first question most people are you are you a serial killer? I, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm it usually pleased. freaks them out. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure no, of course, good. absolutely. <laughs> So, I mean, would you say, because obviously, you know, we, we haven't seen the film yet, obviously, would you say that it's the relationship between Brad and Jeremy that kind of really drives the film? I, I hope so. I really wanted that to be the heart of the film. I was hoping that, you know, the idea is to obviously put things in front of you that are, um, uh, you know, jarring <laughs> and that makes you go, oh, my God, is this, this, is this acceptable? It challenges you sort of morally. Is it is it socially, you know, right? All that kind of stuff. I felt like if, it would be really fun if I could put that in front of you at the same time sort of give you this really compelling relationship. Um, these two guys that are sort of lost souls that really need each other um, and sort of just without without words kind of understand each other and uh, more importantly don't judge each other. And I, I just felt like it would be cool to just kind of see those two guys together um, sort of needing each other, almost like family for each other. And even though what they're kind of in a lot of ways, heinous, you know, you, you, you kind of, you get behind them and you, you start, you start excusing it. I thought that'd be a fun kind of thing to do. So that's what we were going for. I wondered if what, one of the things you had to do was you had to make the audience sympathize with, with Brad's character and also with, you know, by using Jeremy and his situation, you know, that's, it's, that, that, that's the kind of thing that you were going for. Yeah. Crucial. I mean, it's crucial. That was my biggest, that was my fear from the beginning to the end. I was always on, talking with the actors and always just analyzing the script and, and just making sure every everything we did it was exactly what you just said. Okay. And one of the things that, that kind of got me interested when you were saying about the fact that you, you you felt the pressure to make a bit more of a genre film, but yet sort of, you know, still stay uh, true to the kind of characters and the, and the stories that you wanted to tell. Did you have to compromise at all in, in, in the way that you filmed this or in some of the things that you included? Um, not too badly. You always have to, to be honest with you, man. I mean, just a, a little bit. I'm not going to lie about it. I mean, you're you're, you're you're from a first time guy, you know. So when it's your first time out of the gate, you got to sort of play by the rules. And I knew that, and we were cool with it. We we thought, you know, my my friend and I, the, the writer Alec and I, we we said, you know, we'll at least have fun with it. So we we tried to at least have as much fun with the with the bits as possible and, and gags. Um, but uh, yeah, you got to, you know, we had to. There's Get, gets you out there and helps obviously sell the film and all that kind of stuff. But um, I don't. One thing I was very grateful for is that our producer, the, the, the producer of the film, totally backed me creatively. So as far as like you know, 
when I was really adamant about, you know, the storyline's got to have this, and, and these guys would never do that, which is, they were like, okay. So I was very, you know, I'm very grateful for that. And it's good to see a film that's, that's an original concept because, you know, we see so many remakes, we see so many reboots and, and franchise films. Um, you're kind of stepping into that arena pretty much with this film because it's going to go up against, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels and, and all that sort of stuff. Where do you see right. this being positioned? What's your take on current remake culture within, within Hollywood? Um, well, you know, i got to be honest. I, I, it's all remakes and sequels. I mean, you, you guys know that. Um, it's it's frustrating, you know, as a as a an indie, you know, as a filmmaker, you want to see more original ideas get a chance. Um, some of them are cool. I don't mean to. I mean, Friday the Thirteenth looks really cool. I mean, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> All that stuff looks. A lot of it looks really cool. But um, you know, you'd be great if you if we could. You know, I, I love it when somebody can get a chance to kind of do something more, you know, original and something sort of fresh. Um, to be honest with you, our film is. is uh, um, I was told not to use this word, but you know it's 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 pretty small right now. I think it's it's a small film that I just I just made it from the heart, man. I mean, we just we just put 100 percent into it, and I'm hoping people will just um, you know check it out and give it a chance. So uh, I don't know if it's <laughs> fair to compare it to Friday the 13th, but um, yeah, I hope I hope I hope people dig it. I hope people sort of get behind it and like the characters. That's that's really um it's really all you can ask for at the end of the day. If people are sort of compelled, and and if it's uh. It's the kind of thing you can get wrapped up in, you know. Well, that's it because I mean, you look at uh, the sort of the situation at the moment, and the more indie films, that's where you get to see a lot, a bit more of like the original ideas, and you get to see people who um, have the chance to tell their own stories. They're not reliant; they're not sort of part of this enormous machine, either it be, a, be it a remake or be it like a sequel or whatever. Um, and there's kind of so much baggage that comes with it. In some ways, with with a film like Death and Cremation, you're coming into it fresh, and this is where you start to see a lot of original ideas coming through. Um, all right, let me open this up. Uh, Brendan, Craig, have you got any questions for Justin? Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask uh, Justin just a little bit about working with Brad Dourif, because uh, obviously um, I'm quite a big fan of Brad Dourif, and I was just wondering how you managed to start working with him, and obviously uh, Jeremy Sumter's kind of a rising star as well, so I was wondering uh, kind of how you got to work with them and how that developed and what it was like working with them, and uh, Deb and I are as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan. I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. I was, I was a huge fan. Still, I'm a huge fan of Brad. Um, I think, uh, to be honest with you, I feel like that was the luckiest part of this thing for me. I was very um, fortunate to work with him. I learned a tremendous amount with him, um, tremendous. And um, to answer your question initially, how it came about, uh, you know, <laughs> honestly, my, the writer and I kind of, Alec and I, put this thing together. And a good friend of mine, Ross, who produced it, um, he and I just kind of sat down and made a wish list. And we, we went through just a, a bunch of actors and, and guys that we thought would be really cool for it. And I had initially thought of some smaller guys. Um, a couple of the actors that we threw out, just you know, so, you know like Tom Berenger, we threw out uh, um, Jeffrey Jones. I don't know if you know this actor. Um, just sort of some like interesting sort of oddball characters that, but that we thought were really cool actors. And... Our our dream was Brad Dorf. I mean, my dream certainly. I said, you know, Brad is like, you know, born to play this. This would be like the coolest thing ever. But I, I didn't. I just didn't think we had a shot. Frankly, I mean, I, you know, he's an Oscar nominee, and I'm a first time guy, and you know, I just it's such an odd script. And you know, we'll see. And obviously, we didn't have. We had like virtually no money. So, we it's fair to with no money. 
And so I said, you know, this, this, this is a long shot. We both agreed. But we said, what the heck, let's throw the dice and, and see what happens. Um, so without getting too long-winded, we, we, we threw it out to an agency. We, we basically put the script out cold to agencies, which is um, like, you know, putting a kick-me sign on you and walking through school. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so we didn't hear back from many people for weeks, but we were very fortunate. There's a... Um, a little New York who who uh, works for UTA and he wrote us back very out of the blue and he's you know I think this thing has potential uh, I know you guys are nobodies but uh, I think this thing's really cool and I'd love to see if I could help you um, get some of our stars attached to it and I said wow we were so we were wheels and going crazy oddly enough nothing ever came of it but I think that sort of excitement and energy sort of evolved to us feeling like we had a shot. And we, long story short, just said, you know what, let's just make an offer, Brad. Let's just call him up. Let's just call his agent up, make him an offer, and have him read this and see what happens. And we we tried with a few other people, um, and, you know, you, you basically don't get any response. This is literally what happened with Brad. We submitted it on Friday, Friday afternoon, uh, to his agent. Monday morning at 8.30 in the morning is ridiculous. It's no calls up early he, he calls he calls and says brad wants to do it he doesn't care about the money he loves it he's in period that's it and we hung up so we were bouncing off the wall we i still to this day can't believe that it happened that way but um very i mean i'm i'm very grateful to him very indebted to him and and he he yes he is probably the biggest reason the film got made what what was it like working with him on set as well was he um you say he was obviously quite um you learned a lot from him um, amazing. I was just, amazing. Yeah. What I did was, as soon as we had kind of cast the whole thing, I, I put together a table read. Um, I just like to do that because I feel like even if the actors are not going to be in scenes together, it's the one the one sort of time that we can all kind of get together, almost like a family, and meet everyone. Everyone sees you know, the whole story played out end to end, and it's just kind of a cool thing to do. So um, I had put together a table read, and um, that was my initial you know, meet of, of Brad. And he was the first one there. I mean, he was there like half hour before when he was there, ready to go and, you know, just chatting it up with me. And uh, so that was already, I was extremely relieved. You know, obviously going in there, I was so nervous. You know, what am I, am I going to say something stupid? Am I going to mess this up? You know, <laughs> and he was, he got there early and was like, just completely put me at ease. Um, he's very intense. He's very into his work, which I love, which is great for me because I'm the same way. And, um, he he put me. This is what made me feel the best. Right at right after we had finished reading the entire script, you know, everyone sort of shook hands and all that stuff. He very sort of audibly made it known that he was going to rehearse, and he said, "You know, I want to rehearse with you. I want to get together as much as possible. I want to let's let's work this thing out." Um, and I was, of course, once he does that, then all the other actors are like, "Well, I, you know, me too, me too, of course, <laughs> me too." <laughs> so I was like so grateful for that i was like it was, it was he was you know he's sort of the the star of the team you know and, and uh he's the star of the show and, and when he does that it, it obviously everyone's going to step up as well so um that was big for me i really wanted that time i really wanted to rehearse with my actors i really and not just not really sitting reading lines or anything like that just just talking out just sort of figuring out who the character was because there's a lot of things that sort of had to make sense to them before they could just jump in in the skin and, and sort of be that person. So 
I wanted that time, and he was more than, than gracious with it. So um, we, I, I think we met every day of the week for at least two, three hours a day. I mean, you know, so it was, it was great. Yeah. It was, you know, what more to say? <laughs> it sounds like he was like the perfect, the perfect staff for it, especially if he was your dream guy as well. And I mean, uh, Justin, are you the kind of director that is, um, are you the kind of person who uh, wants to talk uh, you know, backstory character. Do you kind of want to get deep into the character? Because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, at, at the trailer, and this is kind of the only thing that I've got to go on at the moment. It looks like yeah. um, uh, Brad's character Stan is um, a, a very intense guy with a, an awful lot going on. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Not not, yes. not not just literally in terms of his actions, but also kind of there seems to be this enormous machine going on in the, in the back of his mind. Did you kind of take? take you know take Brad through what you thought and then did he kind of offer it up is that kind of how it worked out I'm huge on backstory I'm huge on figuring out everything that makes sense about the character um and so I wanted to approach it this way and and they saw that and, and Brad saw that and respected that tremendously and just jumped right in on that but yeah we we would spend I mean we spent weeks literally just talking you know, why does he kill? Why does he have to do, you know, why does he keep all their urns downstairs? Why does he do this? You know, what made him do this? What were his parents like? Um, what was his first kill ever like? Um, you know, it, it, I sort of had this thing where, you know, I saw Stan, the character, this lonely guy, but you know, if, if, if you've ever been lonely, or maybe when you're a kid, you know, you sort of pretend that people are watching you. You sort of like, you run this little pretend um, show in your room or whatever. I, I felt like Stan was that kind of character. He was just deep down, you know, this sort of suppressed desire to um, be a spectacle, be put, put on a show. He, he even Brad comment. He said he he said I felt Stan has a very competitive thing about him as well. Um, so yeah, to, not to go on, you know, belabor the point. Yes, we we loved just sort of figuring him out, and I and I really do feel like, like it showed up on screen. I really do feel like it made things really clear for him and. He had fun just going in there and, and doing stuff. It sounds great that he can that he can do that because I'm I'm you know I'm wondering about the character myself and because he is a serial killer. If you're going to put it down to those basic terms, he's a serial killer, and of course there are many serial killers. So what makes him different? That's the kind of edge that you have to have, and it's nice that you concentrate on that because I'm suddenly thinking, okay, he sees this kid Jared. Um, he sees you know what's being done to him. Did he maybe have that done to him? himself do you know what i mean and if these two yeah. characters are like if you know both introverted then you kind of bring them together and they can almost like keep spurring themselves on do you know what i mean there's a nice little give and take there well that's exactly it and, and we did feel that he was sort of you know we, we felt like jared was a younger version of stan so in other words when stan saw jared he was, was like revisiting his his past mm. and so it was almost his way of going back and saving himself in some ways um he knew he he was sort of traumatized and uh, long story short, he he's no stranger to being bullied. So um, we wanted him, to, you know, to come in and sort of champion Jared as nobody else would. Um, but yes, uh, he, he absolutely needed to connect with him and he absolutely needed to, you know, be able to relate to that. So we, Brad and I spent tons of time talking about that. I will say this too. One of the other funny kind of things was, um, you know, in the script, it, it it's read, it's written that Brad has, uh, the, the character Stan has psoriasis. And I guess initially he missed that. He, he, about a week and a half into talking with me, uh, one of the funniest things, because see, Brad would just call me randomly. He would just call me like, you know, whenever something hit him, like at two in the afternoon or whatever. He'd say, hey, Justin, you know, he'd call me. I'd, 
I'd pick up the phone. He would just sort of sit there quietly for about 30 seconds. And, it was, you know, I'm like, you know, drift on the other line. What's he going to say? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he would say, you know, this character has psoriasis. And I, yeah, yeah, no, it's true, Brad. Yeah. We got to get together tomorrow. I got to get, I got to get made up and we got to walk around the city and I got to know that. I mean, we, I got to experience that. Yeah, we got, we got to do that. Let's do it tomorrow. Okay. Oh, you got it, Brad. And then I was <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I'd frantically call and she'd come over and we'd put this whole thing together but it was fun it was a lot of fun but that's that that's so good to know he sounds like he was right in there do you know what i mean and you need that don't you if you're going to have someone who's uh you know especially for the for the cast as well i mean you've got you you know jeremy sumter as well he's uh like craig said he's like an up-and-coming star but the rest of them if you've got someone like brad who's kind of leading the way in how he relates to you as the director it means that they may sort of follow suit i guess absolutely uh, Jeremy admitted to me. See, the reason I really wanted Jeremy, um, Jeremy was great, by the way. I was very grateful to work with him as well. The, but the, the part that made me want him was uh, the movie Frailty. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's his first film he ever did. Uh, Bill Paxton directed it. Um, okay, it's uh, Oh, you guys should check it out. Okay. Absolutely check it out. It's uh, He plays, without getting too much into it, but, Bill Paxton stars in it as well, and he's basically a father who's raising two kids, and um, you know, typical blue collar guy, real wholesome sort of family on the outside. T- turns out that he's he believes God is in his dreams to kill his neighbors because he thinks they're demons, okay. and it's really really bizarre. But the kids sort of just accept it. Well, one of the kids accepts it, which is Jeremy's character. He's sort of okay, Dad, whatever you say. You know, he's got that kind of like. <laughs> eager desire which I love I thought it was really chilling um, whereas the other kid's like whoa hang on time out this is not right you know so that made that film sort of interesting but anyway that the character that he played in that I thought was so interesting and he just I think he brings this desire this need for approval that I thought would really translate well for this character um, him needing Stan's approval and Stan not really being used to that somebody mm-hmm. wanting you know his approval his thumbs up um is so out of place for him and i thought that would be really sort of compelling um but yeah in in the movie frailty he he uh, he played this great kid anyway he got off the subject that point i was sort of going with is he, he told me that since that movie which is his first film he's ever done he was like nine years old and bill paxton directed it bill paxton insisted that everyone you know rehearse um but since that movie, he's not rehearsed. And okay. He's he's tremendous. I mean, he's a great actor. I don't. I don't. He's he can just he's the kind of kid that can just sort of be goofing around with you, and then you call action, and he's boom, he's there, he's and then cut, and he's right back to goofing around. <laughs> yeah, he's just he's that he's that sort of talented. But um, for this film, I really wanted him to rehearse, and he he told me after he said, you know. Rehearsing, I, I really see the value in it, and uh, it was. I'm I'm really glad that I did get the rehearse, and I'm, I thank you and Brad for sort of making me do it. And and he was really great about doing it as well. Um, and the rehearsal was really good. You could see, you know, the, the whole thing evolve. Justin, are you able to talk to us at all about um, any upcoming projects or kind of things that you're working on or hoping to work on? Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, to, we, we're kind of getting this next project off the ground. I'm, a producer a friend of mine approached me who I've been really, I really wanted to work with. His name's Braxton O, and um, he just finished a film called. If you guys got to see it, it starred uh, Kevin Spacey and had Robin Williams in it. A little indie film, and um, 
and it did pretty well out here. It was, it was really cool. Um, anyway, he approached me with a project that I'm sort of developing with him, and we're sort of rewriting. And just, um, I'm getting putting my little personal touches on it, but we hope to be going into production on it very soon. I, my goal is to, to be shooting it by the end of this year. And we're, we're hoping that we can start casting on it in about a month or so. And I just finished a rewrite on it this week, and I'm pretty pleased with it. So I'm going to put it out to, to him and some of the other producers working on it from there. But, um, yeah, really excited about it. Um, the project's basically like a throwback film Mars, like uh, a hit talk. I know everyone said that every you know, sort of director says that now, but <laughs> um, it's really not. It's uh, it's about a telemarketer who um, gets involved in a phone call that, where he he he, he you know, initiates sort of a side deal because he's kind of a hustler himself. He meets up with him at a bar and tries to sort of uh, sell him um, uh, you know, sell him this personal service that he does that basically just trying to scam him to, to make some money, and ends up getting involved in uh, in uh, murder and. Uh, the thing gets over his head and he's overwhelmed and before you know it, the, he's sort of um, mayhem ensues. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, it's fun. It should be fun. Have you got a, uh, have you got a dream list uh, of, of actors absolutely. already cast out for that? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I should put this out there, but I, well, anyway, um, uh, Michael Shannon would be a dream. I would love him to see the lead. I don't know if you know this actor. Um, yeah, yeah. in Revolution. Yeah, Revolutionary Road, nominated for an Oscar. I, he's coming out in uh, that new Jonah Hex movie. He was also in The Runaways. I think he's amazing. I saw him in a film called Shotgun Stories, and uh, I think he's I think he's the one of the most underrated talents out there. I, I think if, if he leads in a film, it's just gonna it's gonna be tremendous. So I'm hoping I can get him. Um, and we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed and hoping that we can get someone like Jeremy Irons to play one of the other parts and. Uh, there, there's a female part in the film that's really big. She's sort of the femme fatale. Um, and so I know that part's really big. I don't have any, I have a few ideas. I'm, I'm almost afraid to say them because I, I feel like I might, I don't know if I'm shooting too big or too small, but. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I mean, it sounds like you don't want to jinx it. And I, and I totally understand yeah. it. I mean, that makes tons yeah. of sense. But um, yeah, yeah. Justin, death and cremation, like you said, you're coming to, uh, to the end of sort of post-production at the moment. Uh, when the film is out, um, I hope you'll come back on on the podcast and we can talk about it a little bit because I really really can't wait to see it. So, oh, I'd absolutely, I'd absolutely love to. And uh, thank you guys so much for having me. Now it really it's it's really cool to just kind of be able to talk about it and answer these questions. And uh, yeah, we're very I'm very grateful. Thank you guys, honestly.